Uh, well, thank you, Katie and Carla and Megan. That was great. Um, they do a tremendous job with our, our kids here. And, um, man, if you've got kids, even if you don't, you want to be a kid for a little bit, you may want to come to Blast just for the fun of that because it's going to be great. Uh, well, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Uh, welcome. Thank you for being here this morning. If you're watching online right now, thank you for watching online. We're glad to see you here um, as well. So, hey, um, I uh, we're, am excited to be in part two of what is a 12-part series called Free From That. And I want to begin this morning by telling you all a story that I think I may have told some of you personally before. But it was a long time ago, maybe a decade ago or so, I was having breakfast with a friend at a local restaurant. And... Uh, he was a good friend, um, and we sat down, and I'm not a huge breakfast eater. I don't know what your breakfast patterns are, right? But I will often at home, I'm going to make myself two eggs, usually over medium. The difference between over light and over medium, by the way, just to be clear, we can talk about that later. A little bit of toast, and I'm about good to go for the day. So that's about what I order when I go out to eat, right? And, but this gentleman uh, preferred the buffet, which is fine. So we sit down at a restaurant that he comes to all the time, and I do not. And so we sit down at the table, and the server comes out to him and just starts a conversation and says, hey, would you like your usual? He's like, yes. Like, I don't know what that means, because I knew he also went up to get the buffet. So server leaves, goes to the back in the kitchen. Meanwhile, he goes up to the buffet. I order my eggs and toast and maybe home fries. He comes back with the fullest plate of food I've seen in a long time. It's got, it's got everything. He's got, you know, potatoes, hash browns, those bigger links of sausage that are, like, super fat, like jumbo hot dog thing, all covered with melted cheese, right, just to make sure that we get everything we can from the buffet. At the same time then, the server comes out from the kitchen with the usual, which is eight pieces of bacon for him on his own plate, freshly made just for him. At which point he eats all of his food on his plate, eight pieces of bacon, I'm eating like this much, and he, at the end of it, he's like, do you mind if I go get some more? To which I'm like, I don't care, I'm not your dad, you can go get some more. I didn't say that, but I'm like, yo, go get some more. So he comes back with a plate about two-thirds full of all that same stuff again, more melted cheese, more sausage, more eggs, I mean, this, everything, and then a bowl of oatmeal over here. So he finishes the two-thirds full plate, and as he's eating the oatmeal, he says to me, just in casual conversation, he's like, you know, I got a report back from my heart doctor this week. And everything is good. And I think it's because I eat oatmeal. <laughs> he was not joking. I about lost it. I about dropped my head in my plate. I'm like, what? So I went home to Jen. I said, I found the great eraser of all foods. I'm like, line it up. Give me the hot fudge sundae. Give me the hot dogs, the burgers, everything. We'll just wash it down with oatmeal and we're good to go right we're good to go so here's the thing i want to talk about this morning with my oatmeal friend he's passed by the way anyway um <laughs> anyhow that was a bad transition apologies apologies so here's the deal as i was sitting there i'm thinking there is there is not much of a better example of this than what happened with my oatmeal friend. And that is this idea and this problem of blind spots. Here I am sitting across from this guy who truly believes in that moment, he truly believed that he was healthy because he eats oatmeal. And I'm sitting there like, are you seeing everything else? To which it's like, well, my heart doctor said I'm good to go and I'm pretty sure it's the oatmeal because I'm, you know, doing well. So here's the thing with blind spots. 
Blind spots are funny because they are at first invisible. And that means like completely not able to be seen. Not like hard to see, but I mean invisible. You don't see him. I don't see him. He didn't see him. Blind spots are by definition, you are blind, unable to see them. In certain situations, in certain friendships, in certain moments, if we yield to people around us who we can trust at certain times, and at times they can take time to see, but it takes time to see them. I remember years ago, we were sitting with our elder team, and we were trying to process some relational stuff that was going on in the church. And it's hard to believe there ever would be relational stuff in the church. And one of the elders, as I was trying to understand someone's reaction to me, one of the elders said to me, and they said, you know what, Tim? I said, I don't understand. And what they said is, you know what, Tim? Sometimes when you're with people, it can feel like you're thinking about something or someone else, and you're not always present in the moment. To which I'm like, what? I eat oatmeal. I should be healthy. Because I don't see the things about me that you see about me, sitting across the table, if you will, from me. Right? But it's a gift. At times, it takes time to see. And as I listen to my friend share that, I'm like, you know, I think he's right. I think he's right, but it takes time. To see The problem, additionally, with blind spots is this. They have real-world consequences, real-life consequences. There's a reason why cars nowadays try to create blind spot monitors for you and for me so we don't kill people and die because we run into someone in the blind spot, right? Blind spots, relationally, they ruin relationships. They hurt our jobs. They hurt our economy. They hurt our kids. And in times, at times... Blind spots will hide in our faith. That is my interest this morning. It will hide in our faith. And when blind spots hide in our faith, blind spots can have real life and real world consequences for you and for me and how I relate to God and how I think he relates to me. One of the blind spots I want you to consider this morning. So I want to ask this question. That is, do you think it's possible... That at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, there could be a blind spot for you even this morning. Now, you may be here this morning or listening online. You may say, well, that's great because I'm not, I don't identify as a Christian, which is, I would say, I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad to have you listening. We we love to engage conversation with you. But if you are sitting here and you say, that's how I identify, I'm a a Christian, I follow Christ. I want to ask you to consider for a moment if it's possible that inside of how you perceive Christianity, at the very heart of it, that if it's possible, there might be a blind spot for all of us that we could be vulnerable to. Because blind spots are by definition invisible. Sometimes they take time to see and they have real life consequences. Tim Keller put it this way, and here's a blind spot I wanna attack this morning. He put it this way, he said, the default mode of the human heart is works righteousness. We do not ordinarily live as if the gospel is true. The default mode, when I wake up in the morning, when I start functioning in my day, when I engage the people I work with, my family, whoever it is that I engage with, 
the default mode, my primary tendency of the human heart is works righteousness. The more that I do, the more you will like me. The more faithful I am or ethical or moral I am, the more God will like me. The more that I am consistent, dependable, reliable, the better. And conversely, the worse I am, the worse I will be. The default mode, Keller argues, of the human heart is not the gospel, but is actually works righteousness. We do not, it's a powerful statement to make, we do not ordinarily live as if the gospel is actually true. He's not saying that we don't say the gospel is true. He's just saying we don't live like the gospel is actually true. It was August 9th of 2020 when Joe Carter wrote an article in um, the Gospel Coalition uh, website, basically, and he wrote this. The article was entitled, listen to this title, A Majority of American Christians Don't Believe the Gospel. Isn't that funny? Basically, a survey was conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University and found that, in general, this is not just Christians, but a plurality of adults in America. 48% of Americans, regardless of how they affiliated religiously or spiritually, 48% believe a person, if they're generally good or does enough good things in their life, they'll earn a place in heaven. And only one-third disagree with that. If you take that survey down into those who identify as Christians, a majority of Americans who describe themselves as Christian, that is 52%, also accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. 52%, according to this study in 2020, will accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. Let's drill that down a little bit further. Those associated with Pentecostalism, 46% will affirm a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. Mainline Protestants, 44%. Evangelicals, 41%. Catholics, nearly two-thirds at 70%, will hold this view of a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. Now, that's global. Let me drill this down further to me and maybe to you. Think about it conversely. I want you to think for a minute about why it is that you say no to whatever you consider to be ungodly or unrighteous behavior. Last time you thought about yelling, your children thought about saying a bad word to them? Last time you're ready to rage on your employer? Last time that person cut you off in traffic? The things that you think about doing in the privacy of your own home, in the privacy of your own moments when no one will know what you will do next. The temptation toward addictions of any kind. Whenever we're in those moments, what causes you to say, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to rage. I'm not going to cuss them out. I'm not going to get hammered on a Friday night. I'm not going to be stuck on pornography. I'm not going to continue the gossip train. What makes you say no to things that you would classify as ungodly or unrighteous behavior? And as I think through my own life, what makes me say no? And as I learn in this space, one of the things I'm learning is that many of the reasons that I say no are reasons like this, that I'll say no because I'll look bad. I'll say no because I will have regrets. I'll say no because my friend group might kick me out. I'll say no because I don't think God will give me what I want. 
Maybe in my younger years, I would be afraid that God might send me to hell if I do that. I might say no because I'll hate myself for saying yes. I might say no because my family will reject me. But none of these reasons are because I love the gospel. These are all reasons for me to use God to get what I want in the world in which I live. And so I have to ask, is, does believing in the grace of Jesus Christ to forgive my sins inform me when I say no, or do I think more about the real-world consequences of what will happen relationally to me if I say yes? If the default mode of the human heart is works righteousness, when I say no, I reinforce it. I think what Keller has to say could actually be true. Looking at blind spots is difficult. But we're not the first people to deal with this. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter, an early letter, to the early church in a place called Galatia. And he wrote to this church because what they were hearing, physically represented by false teachers, was a false gospel. It would be as if here this morning people showed up at the front door and said, I have another version of the gospel to give to you. And it was what Jews were doing called Judaizers. They were forcing Judaism onto new believers in ways that Paul fought against. And this morning, I want you to see in Galatians chapter 1 what Paul did with those folks. The problem for us today is that at the front door of our homes and the front door of our hearts and certainly the front door of this church, you will not find those people anymore. The problem is that what they are teaching actually lives inside of us, and that is a more insidious and invisible place in which we have to identify a false gospel. And so I want to invite you to step back from a minute from us and step into the world of Paul as he's going to reveal to us how he deals with and what's going on with these false gospels that come, I think, to all of our hearts. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the letter to Galatians. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible in what we call the New Testament. There's a Bible in the chairs near you if you don't own one. That's our gift to you, by the way. But Galatians chapter 1 is where we were last week. This is where we're going to be here this week as well. We're going to cover about 14 verses this morning, beginning at verse 6 of Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to read a little bit and comment, read and comment, and that's kind of how we'll walk through that here this morning. So here's what he writes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am astonished, writing to his friends there in the church in Galatia, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. He just frames the problem up right there. So let's look at that verse because that's the framework for it. He says, I'm astonished, number one. So he has this emotional reaction. I can't believe it that you are so quickly leaving or deserting the one who called you. This is that, that word kaleo, this, this Greek word that says God is, as a heavenly father is calling you and inviting you in. He's like, I want you to be invited to this kind of relationship. I want the people who follow me to be invited to this kind of relationship. To what? The text says this, to live in the grace of Christ. And that fundamentally is what Paul is saying people are called to. You're called, he's saying, to live in the grace of Christ. To live in the grace of Christ. To live in the grace of Christ over and over and over and over and over again. What our hearts wake up to is to live in the law 
of this world, to live in the law of my friends, to live in the law of my church, to live in the law of my group. What is happening, and many of you know what is happening in Afghanistan has been terrible in the past number of months. I just saw this morning, because I wasn't aware of it before, but they have implemented the morality police, literally, again, from the Taliban's leadership. The morality police are embedded within the police department, within the mosques, within their cultural systems to enforce morality. So that women know what they can and can't do, young children know what they can and can't do, and young men and old men know what they can and cannot do. This expression of moral enforcement for Westerners, we, we feel is terrible. I can't find the right words. I mean, it, it just is so foreign to what we engage with. And yet, if I'm honest with it, that thing is also in my heart. And it lives sometimes hidden in there. I have a morality police, don't you? Your parents ever raise you with a morality police? Exactly how short that skirt is allowed to be? Exactly how loud that music is supposed to be? Exactly what friends you're supposed to hang out with? Exactly how much you can or can't drink of this or that? Exactly what we do on a Sunday and what we don't? Exactly what you're allowed to put in your mouth and what you're not? I mean, we all have. I'm not talking about ethics and making wise decisions. I'm talking about the morality police of our own heart. And here's what Paul says, that you were called by God as a heavenly father to live in the grace of Christ, to live in the grace of Christ. It's a powerful statement that guides everything. He says, I can't believe you've deserted that, and verse 6 continues, and are turning to a different gospel. He goes on to verse 7, he says, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people, and this would be the Judaizers, are, are, allowing, are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's, and what's that next word? Thank you for that one person who said that. Let them be under God's curse. I know, I don't normally do audience participation, so you weren't ready for that, but let's do that one together again one more time. Let them be under God's Thank you. So, as we've already said, now I say it again. If anyone's preaching a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. He's saying, it's not just that God thinks this is a bad idea, but let them be under the curse of God. That if you take the grace of Christ, which Paul is going to fight for fundamentally, and you put something else on that, and you pervert the grace of Christ, let them be under the curse of God. Like, I wouldn't want to be there. I don't know about you. I wouldn't want to be in that space. I wouldn't want to say, yeah, that's what I, that's what I do. Like, I'm under the, the curse of God. Can you imagine that? This is how far Paul is going with that, that anyone who's going to call you or call me to live in a place other than the grace of Christ, let them be under the curse of God. This is kind of crazy. Now, where does this come from, right? Like, where does this, how does this happen? What's behind this? Look at verse 10. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. What's he saying there? He's saying that it's what's, underneath, what's underneath this for the Judaizers, what's underneath them and their desire for this community is that there could be a, a community of people who would think the same way, that we could almost be monolithic in how we function, that we can all agree 
This is the right way to dress. This is the right ceremony to celebrate. This is the right verses to memorize. This is the right way to respond to this moment in your life and this season in your life that we can all agree on doing these kinds of things. And then we all agree, then we can have a way to earn community favor and most likely earn favor within God himself. That I want to please, and Paul is saying, if you were around, if your goal is going to be to please people, in your expression of your spiritual formation, he's saying you can't be a servant of Christ. You're going to have to choose. <laughs> Do I want to please people or be a servant of Christ? You can pick one, but you can't pick both of them. Now, I want a third option. Because I don't like when people don't like me. I don't like when there's tension in my family. I don't know if you like it when there's tension in yours. I don't like when people look down on me because I do something they think I shouldn't do. I don't know if you like disappointing your parents. I don't. But he's saying, you can't be a servant of Christ and please people. Pick one. And then it goes further as we think about where this gospel comes from. He goes into verse 11 as he explains the nature of these kinds of false gospels. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached is not of human origin. Meaning, I didn't I am not sending to you something that I created in my head or was created by some really smart religious people around me. I did not, verse 12, receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Like, I received these things directly from Christ. I did not come to you from anybody else. came directly from Christ. And then he goes on. What he says next and where he goes next is very telling because... He's going to tell them this, and we're going to read it. He's going to tell them this, that he grew up with a false gospel. He was raised with a false gospel. The way that he went through his teenage and adolescent years was by living and breathing the air of what is false. Now, I don't know what it takes for you to wake up to some of those moments in your own life, to realize that people who loved you and maybe surrounded you may have raised you inadvertently, even, with something that isn't true. What if you were raised in a blind spot? Because that's what Paul says. Look at verse 13. He says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in, in Judaism excuse me, beyond many of my own age among my people. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. And later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, or Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. What he's saying is, guys, I grew up with this stuff. I grew up wanting to please. I grew up in Judaism. I grew up in all that you are fighting for. And I assure you, this is no lie. I didn't go and come up with another gospel that came from Christ. And so let me transition from Paul to where we are today. 
what Paul was dealing with in his time for the church of Galatia was this real struggle of those who wanted to come in and send a false gospel message. Those who wanted to come in and say, there's more that you can and should do. Accept Christ, sure, but add on these things. The question becomes, again, who's knocking on our front door, right? Who are the, where do the false voices come today? How is it that we can even identify where these false gospel voices come to you and maybe to me today? Where do they come? What do they sound like? Like, it would be so much easier if I could just say, hey, when you go online here, watch this one, and when you listen to this and read this book, you know, be careful of this, and, you know, there be someone on the outside and you way out, you know, watch out for them. It would be so much easier. But these things hide b behind so many different things, and so I, I have done some learning here, and I think you have too over the years, but I have been incredibly um, informed shaped by Tim Keller, again, in his thinking about how to hear and understand the voice of the false gospel, which today I'm going to call religion versus the gospel. And so what I've done for you today, just this is free for being here this morning. You're welcome. And if you're online, you're online. But we can get this to you if you would like. Um, I have created and given, we'll give to you on the way out this little handout. It's called Free From That on the top. It's going to be a summary of some things that we're talking about in this moment coming up. When you think about how, what I'm trying to do is identify the voice of the false gospel today. Religion says this, and here's the voice of the false gospel. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel of the grace of Christ puts it this way, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Two very different voices, both having to do with obedience, both having to struggle with acceptance. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Haven't you felt that? I have. I have felt that a lot. But I have felt that growing up, by the way. I'm not critiquing my parents. I'm, I'm understanding my childhood and all of the influences that I've had. I have absolutely felt that. That when I obeyed, I felt more accepted, especially if you're a people pleaser, especially if you're a rule follower. You feel this. And it grows within you. And you begin to sense this is how God is. It's very difficult to live in the grace of Christ that says, I am first accepted, therefore I obey. Religion also puts it this way. My motivation is based on fear and insecurity. My motivation for functioning is fear and insecurity. The gospel puts it this way, that motivation is based on grateful joy. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been afraid of what people would do, about the groups that you'd get kicked out of, about exactly what your parents would do when you disobeyed, about exactly what would happen in your friend groups if you did something different. Motivation is based on fear and insecurity. For the gospel, motivation for obedience, motivation to follow God isn't based on fear and insecurity of what God will do. It's based on grateful joy for the grace of Christ. Religion tells my heart this, that I obey God in order to get things from him. The gospel tells me this, that I obey God to delight and resemble God. Religion says I obey to get things from him. The more that I obey, the more I get good gifts from him. The more I get faithfulness from him, the more I get the responses from him, the more, the more answers to prayer that I'll probably get if I'm more obedient and more faithful to him. The gospel says I obey God, yeah, but to delight him and to resemble him is very different. Keller goes on in this chart, and there's more here, and I just want to read a couple, and I'm going to move on. Think about this. Religion says this, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself. Can anyone think of any circumstances in life that have gone wrong in the last year and a half? When circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself since I believe like Job's friends that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. For the gospel, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle 
but I know that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Listen to this one. Here's a voice of religion. When I'm criticized, I am furious or devastated because it's essential for me to think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. Relationships, gone. When I am criticized, the gospel says, I struggle. But it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. And on and on it goes. The voice of religion, the voice of a false gospel, is something that I wrestle with and I wake up with every day. I agree with Tim Keller, the quote at the beginning, that the default mode of the human heart is works righteousness. You know what happened? I joked about this beginning, at the beginning, but you know what happened to my oatmeal friend? <laughs> um, he did die. I mean, we're all going to, okay, so that's fair. But um, within two years, he was getting bypass surgery. Can you believe he had a blockage in his system? somewhere. And then a few years later, he did pass away from health-related complications. Not a surprise to any of you who are listening. Not a surprise to me. But it was a surprise to him. How did he get here? Because blind spots are invisible to us. And they have real-world consequences, which is why they're dangerous. And especially when they're intertwined with faith, they can be a real problem. And so, friends, you may not have walked in here this morning thinking that you have, are believing anything wrong. Goodness, you would change that if you thought you were wrong, right? You may have walked in here not thinking you're living wrong, because, goodness, you would have changed if you were living wrong already, right? Isn't that how that works? But isn't that what blind spots are? If I can urge you, if I can implore you to consider this question, is it possible that there's a false gospel hidden in a blind spot in your own faith. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I don't want you to miss the power, the power of the default mode of the human heart to drive you from what actually frees you. You are freed by the grace of Christ and you are imprisoned by the law but the default mode of the human heart is always going to be toward the law. But you are free from that. And let anyone be under God's curse who leads you in a different direction. And so, friends, this insidious peace hangs, I think, in all of us. The issue isn't always getting rid of it, but it's being aware of it and seeing it and allowing our discipleship to grow. So friends, consider the question. Is it possible there's a false gospel hidden somewhere in your own faith? And do me a favor, consider it. On your way out, take this, read it over, pray through it. Let it settle into your heart as you engage your friends, your coworkers, your family, even this week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning and to step into the space that Paul led us into as he was dealing with a, an early church wrestling with the false gospel, trying to lay down in no uncertain terms from the very beginning 
of Christianity, that Christianity centers around the grace of Christ. Knowing that for generations to come and for millennia to come, we as people will continue to wrestle with the works righteousness bent of our hearts. We love to do things to make ourselves better. I pray that you would redeem that characteristic in us. As we work for the good of our friends and neighbors, I pray that we would be anchored deeply to the grace of Christ and that you would help us by your spirit to root out moralism, legalism, law-abiding parts of our heart that are more judgmental, less loving. Father, I pray that you would help us to be free from that law and bound in loving affection to the grace of Christ. It's in his name that we pray.